Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 5 of Revelation, recognizing our need to be redeemed and identifying our kinsman redeemer. Who is worthy? Grab your Bibles and find out as we continue our journey in the Word. But if that's the case, we have to ask, if that's the case, if Jesus has taken back the title deed, then why is Satan still so active and why is he still so in control of things in our world today? Because, as Morris tells us in his commentary, even after the price was paid, the great usurper must still be expelled from the redeemed estate before the redemption of the purchased possession would be complete. I think back to the Civil War and the carpetbaggers, right? They moved in on the spoils of war, but it, it wasn't theirs. They just took over something that wasn't theirs, and eventually they were extracted. They were removed from the provinces. And that's what this is about that we're looking at here in Revelation. That's what, in fact, this whole book is about. But here in particular, in chapter 5, as it begins to open up to us, it's about this. It's, it's about God describing to us how the owner of the vineyard is about to come back and to lay full claim, to take full possession of that which rightly belonged to him and really to his people. It'll reveal how he's fighting finally and completely going to expel the illegal tenants from this earth. Amen? Does that make sense? You following this? So anyways, let's look back to, to Revelation 5.1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So now John sees this strong angel rising up and asking this important, really declarative question. Now, a lot of people think it's the angel Gabriel here, but we're not told, so we don't know. And it really doesn't matter because this angel is not the focus, even though people want to make angels the focus. The angel isn't the focus here or anywhere else. The focus is found in the question that the angel is asking. Who is worthy to open the scrolls and to loose its seals? That's an important question. But the reality is, it isn't so much a question as it is a challenge that he's uttering to all creation in this moment. It's a challenge that he's uttering. It's kind of like the moment during a wedding ceremony when the preacher says, let anyone who knows of any reason why this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony step forward and speak or forever hold his peace. Have you ever been to a wedding where somebody stood up and said, well, hang on there just a minute, Right? We know it's a rhetorical, it's a rhetorical question. They're throwing it out there, but nobody's expected to jump up and answer that. <laughs> you know, no one honestly expects that to happen. And it's pretty much the same thing here with this statement. Like the preacher, this angel knows the answer to the question that he's asking. He knows that there's no one in the world who's worthy to do this other than the kinsman redeemer who he'll get to. But the challenge has to be issued. It has to be issued so that the world will know that there's no other person or being who exists who is worthy enough to do this. Not in the heavenly realm, not in the earthly realm. No one other than the one who's about to be proclaimed. Now that's an important challenge. It's an important challenge for all of us as human beings to hear and to come to terms with because a lot of people in this world, maybe even some of you at some point in your life, lived under the delusion that you had the ability to somehow redeem yourself. 
that you could do it, that you could do enough good works, you could do enough good kind acts, you could show enough mercy to people, you could do enough good things that somehow you could redeem yourself. But the truth is we can't. We couldn't then, we can't now, we can't. We're not qualified, nor are we worthy to open the seals to the title deed. Not to our lives, not to this world, not to any of it. We gave it away. And we didn't do anything to buy it back. In fact, we don't have what's required to pay the price to buy it back. And yet so many people convince themselves that they have the ability, the authority, and the resources that are required. I think of my mom all of the time. You've heard this testimony, but 90 years old, takes her 90 years to come to the Lord. I mean, the odds were against that to begin with at that age. But she lived the better part of her life, and I lived the first part of my life hearing that if you just went to church enough and you did enough good things, it was all going to be good. That God's going to, he's going to, you're saved because you're doing all these things. And never really comprehending the fact that we can't do enough good works. Are good works wrong? No. We should be doing them. As believers, we most certainly should be doing them because faith without works is what? Dead faith. It's meaningless faith. It's valueless faith. The idea is he saved us so that we could serve, so that we could live differently. But, but our works, the good things that we do, as good as they are, have nothing to do with our salvation. They have nothing to do with our ability to redeem ourselves and to believe otherwise is, is, is a delusion. It's, it's false. It's a false narrative. And yet so many people still believe this. We can't. We can't. We cannot take that deed and open that scroll. We cannot do it. And this angel knows that we can't. And he's making this statement so that we and, and, and everyone else will come to terms with the reality that there's no one who can do this. No man, no woman who has paid the required price, who is worthy enough to buy back the title deed and to open it, except for one person. Read on. Look at verse 3. He says, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Here's John's response because he gets it. He gets it. He gets that the focus in this moment is a challenge to human beings. Say, okay, who of you out there can do this? Step up and do it. Who of you can take this title deed and break its scroll open so that there can be salvation, so that there can be redemption, so that all of the evil that's in the hand of the illegal owners can be taken back? He knew. He knew. He knew the hopelessness of it all if what was required was for man to be able to do this. He could see that very clearly. He knew that if human beings do not have what it takes to buy it back, then they cannot open it either. And if they can't open it, then there is no hope of the redemption that this scroll is all about. Just as Paul so powerfully declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, you know this passage, but listen to what Paul says, because it's the same idea. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection? of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." He's saying this to a people who lived under the law and thought they could do it under the law. 
And he's saying, you can't. You guys haven't figured it out. You can't do it under the law. So if, you, if Christ didn't do what he said he did, then you're in a lot of trouble. There's no hope. It's little wonder that John's weeping in this moment because the truth of this is impacting him. The truth of this reality is impacting him that we do not have what it takes to open that scroll for redemption to occur. But look on, look at verse five. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So in response to John's sorrow, one of the elders speaks these words of hope, these words of encouragement to John. Don't weep, John. Don't cry. There's hope. Yeah, you're not worthy to open it. Yeah, there's no created being in heaven or on earth who can open it. But there is someone who can, John. There's someone who can, someone who has met the qualifications, who's met the requirements to possess and to open this deed. Someone who has the ability and the right to fully affect ownership. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one who can do it, John. Now that title is used throughout the Old Testament. And when it's used in the Old Testament, it points to the Messiah. It's a reference to the Messiah. It was first used in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, when Jacob pronounced a, a prophetic blessing upon his son uh, Judah. But it goes beyond that. Jacob refers to Judah as a lion, an animal associated with supreme leadership. And he's saying that the scepter, in fact, here's the verse, Genesis 49, beginning in verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Ju Jacob refers to Judah, his son, as a lion, an animal associated with supreme leadership, and he's saying that the scepter, the scepter is a term that, that refers to power, to authority. He's saying it would rest with his tribe until Shiloh comes. Now, Shiloh is a title associated with the Messiah that, that was, they were waiting for. It was a, a title associated with Messiah. And thus what Jacob was saying is that the authority and the power to rule over the nation of Israel would remain with the tribe of Judah until the Messiah came and assumed that power and authority to himself. And Judah historically became the source of great power and authority over Israel just as Jacob prophesied they would here. And David and his descendants, the greatest of Israel's leaders from the tribe of Judah, were from that tribe. They ruled with authority. But in A.D. 12, something significant occurred. In A.D. 12, the Romans issued a decree declaring the Jews were no longer permitted to carry out capital punishment. Now, that was considered by the Jews to be a, a huge blow because the authority to govern as they would govern was long associated with capital punishment, that that was an absolute uh, a sword, if you will, of authority for a government of any kind. It was the cornerstone of their governmental authority. And they believed this based on the covenant that God established with Noah, recorded in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Here's what it says in Genesis 9, 5. Surely, for your lifeblood, I 
will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. The Jews look to this as the cornerstone of their governmental authority and saying that this was a responsibility that God had given to them to govern, that to, to execute capital punishment in the circumstances where it was warranted was their authority. But the Romans took it away from them. They took it away from him. In response to that decree, the rabbis, it's told historically, that they rushed into the streets of Jerusalem. They tore their clothes. They beat their chests in protest. Historians tell us the whole city was filled with the wailing, the crying of these rabbis who understood that something awful had just taken place. They realized that with this decree, Jacob's prophecy was being fulfilled. The scepter had departed. The authority was gone. But the problem was is that in their mind, Shiloh had not yet come. Shiloh had not yet come. And that was a problem. But guess who was sitting in the temple, confounding the scribes and the religious leaders of the day when that very edict was happening? A 12-year-old boy from Nazareth named Jesus Bar Joseph. Shiloh had come. Shiloh was there. They just didn't realize it yet. The Lion of Judah was truly among them. (laughs) And what a fitting name. What a fitting name this is for Jesus. The Lion of Judah. The Lion. The King of the Beasts. You know, I've really gotten, I was telling somebody, I, I don't know how many of you guys do this, but I, like, I get hooked sometimes on my iPhone <laughs> looking at videos on Facebook. The ones I'm really into right now are these ones with the people with their pet lions and stuff. It's like, I'm like with Cindy. I, like, I want one of those. <laughs> I want a pet lion. Look how nice they are. They're really friendly. The guy's sleeping in his bed and the lion's sleeping next to him. I said, you know what? He doesn't have to worry the lion's going to eat him in the night. And Cindy's saying, yep, as long as he keeps them well fed. Right, yeah, okay. <laughs> but that's not what we think of when we think of lions, do we? When we see that, we know that's an aberration today. What we think of is king of the beasts. Fierce warriors of the animal kingdom. And when you think about that, isn't that what Jesus is? He is the king of creation. He's the warrior. He is the one like the lion. And like a lion, Jesus is coming back to assume his kingly position over all things created on the earth and in heaven, just as Paul proclaims in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. He says, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But keep in mind, this is one of the reasons why the Jews missed him in the first place when he came. Because even though he was among them, and even though he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, he did not come to fulfill that role at that time. A role that they expected their Messiah to fulfill. They expected their Messiah to come and be like warrior David, to be these things. But when Jesus came the first time, he came to fulfill another role associated with the prophetic scriptures. And that role is the role of the suffering servant. They were looking for a lion king. And he will come and he will fulfill that particular role at some point in the future one day, I believe very soon. But first he had to come as the lowly servant and sacrifice. They just missed it because they were fixated on this aspect of him instead. A clear warning to you and to me to be very careful to let Jesus be who Jesus is. And not to conform him to some idea of what we think he needs to be. Because in the end, we will miss the true Jesus when we do that. 
Be very careful about making Jesus fit your template. And I think in Christianity, we're doing a lot of that today. <laughs> you know, let Jesus be who Jesus is. Now note also the, the elders refer to him as the root of David. Jesus was born of the house and the lineage of King David, but he's also called the root because he preceded David. He preceded David because unlike David, he wasn't a created being, not in the same way. Yes, he was born into this world, but he existed long before he was ever born into this world. He has existed since eternity. So even though he is the offspring of David, he is also the root of David. And so this elder presents these realities of, of Jesus, of who Jesus is to John, or rather this angel, he presents it, presents it to, to, to John of, of who Jesus really is in order to give him hope. And there is no need to weep. Jesus has come and Jesus has and Jesus will prevail. He has redeemed the earth. He has secured the title deed to the earth and he has the authority and the power to open that deed and to put it into effect. But then look at verse 6. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This must have been a surprising moment for John because he was likely expecting to see the lion that the elder or that the angel had just described to him. But instead, what's he see? He sees a lamb. He sees a lamb. In fact, John describes this lamb in some really interesting terms. Number one, in the Greek, he doesn't just say he saw a lamb, but he says he saw a little or a delicate lamb. <laughs> Literally, that's what he's saying. It's a picture of innocence. It's a picture of vulnerability and harmlessness that John is describing here. I've personally seen some sheep that I would not want to get into the pen with. Trust me, I've seen them. I've seen them when they're looking nasty and they want to nip at you and bite at you. But this is not the case with this particular lamb that John sees. This one is little. This one is non-threatening. The image is that of little lambs that the Jews would bring into their homes before the Passover celebration and make a part of their family as they inspected them. Second, added to this image, John says that this little lamb had the marks of violence upon it, uh, on it, that it contained wounds that indicated that it had been killed at some point. It is perfectly clear that John is seeing Jesus in this moment. This is the Lion of Judah that is here before John, but he's also seeing him in his other important role as the suffering servant in the role of the sacrifice who came to lay down his life for us. Just as Isaiah describes in Isaiah 53, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It had pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Can I get an amen? That's Jesus that Isaiah is describing. And it's the same Jesus that John is now seeing. Jesus is both the lion of Judah and he is the lamb who was slain. Third, the wording that John uses here as though it had been slain is also significant. It's also significant. It's significant because the Greek, what he's saying in the Greek, he, he, he isn't saying it in the past tense. It's not a past tense statement, but rather he's using it in a tense that indicates that the action is still fresh and continuing. It's as if he's still being slain. In other words, the effects of the sacrifice are ongoing. They're never ending. As I've shared with you guys before, as Jesus hung on the cross on that day, on that dark day, he transcended time. He transcended time as, as such. It's as though he's doing it right now for you and for me at this very moment. He was there being sacrificed at the moment that you and, 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 and I committed every sin in our past. They went to the cross. He's there being sacrificed for every sin that we commit in the present. He's there being sacrificed for every sin that we commit in the future. As Clark so adequately states in his commentary, this is very remarkable. So important is the sacrificial offering of Christ in the sight of God that he is still represented as being in the very act of pouring out his blood for the offenses of man. That's, this gives great advantage to faith. When any soul comes to the throne of grace, he finds a sacrifice there provided for him to offer to God. Thus, all succeeding generations find they have the continual sacrifice ready and the newly shed blood to offer. This is Jesus. This is the work of Jesus that he's describing. Now, don't confuse this. This is not like some religions believe that we must re-sacrifice Jesus each time we take communion. That's not the point. The work was done, but the sacrifice is lasting because it transcends time. That's Jesus. Fourth, John also tells us that this lamb has some strange features, seven horns, seven eyes. Seven horns, seven eyes. And throughout scripture, eyes suggest knowledge and they suggest wisdom. We saw the angels before the throne who had a multitude of eyes back in chapter four. We talked about how this communicated to us that nothing could escape their gaze, nothing going unnoticed. And now such attributes are being applied to Jesus in the same way. Now we see the same attribute here. And as we see it, we're reminded of similar references to the eyes associated with the Lord himself in Zechariah 3, 9, where it tells us, for behold, the stone that have, I have laid before Joshua, before the stone or Seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day, ascribing to himself the ability to see everything, to know everything. 
In Zechariah 14, it tells us, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. I am so grateful that I am saved because I want to be seen by him in my salvation state than I did in my pre-salvation state when what he saw was my sinfulness, but now what he sees is the righteousness of Christ covering me. But he sees everyone. He sees all hearts. He sees all motives. He sees the wrongs that are committed against you every day when they occur. He sees the right things that you do in your life in, in your recognition of who he is and what he's done for you. He sees it all. It's the same eyes here now being applied in the book of Revelation. And a horn in, in scripture is symbolic of power and authority. And here it applied to Jesus. It means that as the divine Messiah and King, he possesses all power and authority. But why seven of these things? Simply because Jesus possesses each of these attributes, knowledge and wisdom, power and authority completely and perfectly because seven in scripture is a number that speaks of perfection and completion. And now we see that perfection and completion being applied to the lamb that John is seeing. Does this mean that Jesus literally possesses seven eyes and seven horns? Of course not. It does not. But it does tell us that he is perfect and he is complete in every regard and it also tells us that in him, all the fullness of the spirit dwells. Hence the reference again to the seven spirits of God in this statement, in this verse. All of this should tell you and me that everything that we need, everything that we could possibly want is found in Jesus. He is perfect. He is complete in everything. And he offers himself fully to each and every one of us. Amen. Let's finish this up. Look at verse seven. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. No created being was found worthy to take the scroll, but Jesus was found worthy. Jesus was able to take that scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, he could walk up and he could take it. His position, his character, his lineage, and his redemptive work gave him the ability and the authority to take that scroll and to open it up in this moment. Our kinsman redeemer, Praise God now steps forward in this moment to take what is rightfully his. And as he does, a new song is going to break out in heaven, a song that we're going to look at in even greater detail next week when we all gather back here as we take a look at the rest of this exciting part of this book. Isn't this great stuff? Oh, my goodness. People think of the book of Revelation. They immediately want to jump to all the balls and everything else. But if you don't get this first, you're going to have that completely out of context. You're going to completely miss what all of that is about. And for us as believers, this is our hope, not the bowls and the judgments. That's not what we're looking forward to. This moment in the throne room, we're going to be there cheering him on as he does this. Yes, maybe like John for a moment as the reality of it all hits us, we'll weep too as we realize, man, how often I tried to take the title deed. How often I tried to open the seals for my own life. How often I've tried to do these things, but couldn't do it. Is there anyone who can take it? Is there anyone who can step forward? And Jesus in that moment will step forward and he's gonna take it. And our faith will be made complete in that moment as we see our Lord and our Savior, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. Take that scroll and open it up and bring to pass all, all that God has long promised even since man's fall in the garden. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.